Welcome to the TESFE podcast with me, Sarah Simons. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ben Verinder and we'll be chatting about the 42-day rule. Welcome, Ben. Can you tell us what you do in the world of education? I run an agency that specialises in reputation and market research in education. So we work with universities, school groups and colleges, but also we work with suppliers into education and other bodies around the edges like conservation societies and organisations involved in education, etc. And we help them make decisions by answering tricky questions through research and we also help them plan and provide some services related to communications with public relations. Have you always been in that sort of area? I trained at a college as a journalist many years ago. Brilliant course down at Cornwall College. I then became a journalist, I was a tabloid journalist and then I went to work in radio, bringing back nice memories. I was a producer for the BBC and regional radio and then I went to work as an online journalist and then I, I got into PR, into charity PR and then education PR and then from that uh, I was at one point the communications director for an organisation which you may know called the Association of Colleges. And, yeah, I've heard uh, of them. But that was quite a while ago now and I've been doing this for about six years. What an interesting job. I mean, the research thing, I love it because when we're having conversations with people and we're advising them and helping them make the best decisions for the communities they serve, typically, we can provide that advice based on facts and uh, robust research. So it's not typically, you know, my opinion versus someone else. It's the broad facts of the matter. Yeah. Can you explain to us about this 42-day rule? Essentially, colleges are not paid for students that leave before 42 days after day one of their course so if you've got somebody who drops out before 42 days have passed then you're not funded it's quite in the interest of a college to in particular ensure that students don't move somewhere else or particularly drop out of education altogether in that time scale of course it's in their interest and the individual's interest to ensure that they stay on for the duration of their course when it comes to money from government, the 42-day mark is quite important. It seems like there's a bit of a conflict as well between the brilliant stuff that colleges do in terms of support and making sure that a solid education is available to everyone and getting sure the ones who are going to affect the stats. The very kind of <laughs> brash, no, no, brash way of putting it, but... There are some tensions here, but I don't think it, not necessarily in the way that you described them, because they don't want to get shot of them from pure naked financial reasons. But actually, dropouts at any point are not good for the institution, and they're not good for the individual. And I have to say that we typically work with colleges that, you know, they brought us in to help them understand why people are leaving. They don't want to retain them simply because of financial motives. They want to retain them because they believe that they're the right place for those people. And there's been an issue, there's been a problem that they want to correct. I don't think they're necessarily looking to you know, move people out, quite the opposite sometimes. Yeah. Let me read this bit from the feature that's in this week's TES magazine. At its national conference in March, the NUS passed a motion stating that funding and inspection frameworks mean colleges and individual tutors are incentivised to remove some students before they've been on courses for 42 days. This, the motion says, is in order to protect their achievement rates. Many students are removed from college within this time frame and are denied an education. 
it adds an approach which can significantly and disproportionately disadvantage vulnerable students. You see, that's a slightly different issue. They're not logged in terms of success rates. The other side of the coin is that if those are not retained on records, then you don't have to log the achievement rates, etc., etc. So therefore, you're looking to boost your success rates. That's the argument that's happening now. As I sort of hinted earlier on, we're typically working with institutions that are desperate to retain those students. So that's not been our experience. But of course, we're sort of selected by institutions who want to work with it because they care from both the financial and an individual and an educational point of view. So I'll be the first to admit that the sample of people who work with us is, you know, self-selecting and might not necessarily reflect all of the sector. But I have to say, it doesn't chime with my broader experience of colleges, and particularly the college workforce and college lecturers, that they are prepared to lose students in order to improve success rates, particularly, you know, sort of exclude them, so to speak. It's not what we do, is it? Well, two pieces of evidence that I would suggest counter to the argument that's being put forward there by, what was it, the NUS? Yeah. Number one, if you look at any of the major studies related to the FE workforce, the lecturing workforce in particular, they are quite a homogenous bunch, actually. When you ask the question, why do you get up out of bed in the morning and come to work? A significant majority will have exactly the same answer, which is, you know, change people's lives. It's the main reason why people work in FE. Yeah, and it's yeah. why they'll put up with the current pay gap with school teachers as highlighted in the recent Ofsted annual report and the recent Ofsted survey into FE staff. And it's consistent with any studies we've ever done in relation to staff in colleges. Our research suggests that where students are applying and enrolling in a course and then leaving before the 42-day mark, it's typically not about the college saying, sorry, you're not suitable. It's generally not conspiracy, but cock up. And there's a wide range of different reasons why people drop out before the 42-day mark. And it's typically not that the college has said, we don't want you to be around. Right. Colleges insist most of those who leave early head into a positive destination, another course, a job or an apprenticeship. Do you think this is really the case? And, you know, why do we know so little about these invisible learners who drift out of education almost as soon as they've got into it? Well, they don't appear in the national statistics. Again, you know, it's a bit like you're not registered for funding, you're not registered in success rates, you're not registered in governmental statistics. You know, they're all the same kind of issue. Yeah. We have worked with, I think, between 11 and 12 different colleges now on on 42-day lever study. Yeah. We specialise in these kind of studies. So we do studies to help colleges understand why applicants have gone elsewhere. So they're non-enrolled applicant studies. And we specifically do studies looking at why people who've enrolled have gone elsewhere after they've enrolled. You know, that's 11 out of 260-odd colleges across England. But so, you know, maybe they're doing them internally. Our intelligence suggests they're not. Now, I think typically colleges are not um, seeking to understand in any meaningful detail why people turn up and disappear, which is sad because when they do, it tends to hugely help them and the communities they're serving. Yeah. But in terms of the majority going on to other places, our studies would suggest that's true. The majority are either going on to an alternative 
education institution or into work or an apprenticeship. That is true. Whether they're doing that through their own volition or because of other reasons is the point, I think. Even if a small minority are going into unemployment and are becoming neat, that's still too many people. Yeah. In my experience, when this has happened, it's usually due to attendance or behaviour or something like that. But there's always been a kind of investigation into why this is happening. And more often than not, working in collaboration with them and any other agencies that are involved to find a place that they're better suited to or a course that they're better suited to. Again, that's not well, research. That's, that's just that's my personal of... experience. Well, that, that you know, if that's happening, then that might be an institution that's intervening before the person's going to go. You know, we're not called into institutions that are already dealing with this problem because they don't need our help. My experience is... Uh, that not all institutions do that. And actually, the reasons why people go elsewhere are, as I say, they're on really varied. And they're, they're not exclusively about people's behaviour or the unsuitability of the institution. According to our research, they're not the majority causes. Right. It's a big, long list. That includes poor college communication. How many 16-year-olds do you know that if they're not told the information they need, do they proactively seek it out? They default to the next choice or somebody who's communicating with them better. You might have people who've, who turn up to college and find that the physical and mental health challenges are significant. It might be people with financial challenges and problems that they didn't anticipate, caring responsibilities that they didn't anticipate how difficult it would be to balance those with, with learning responsibilities. Sometimes course content is different to that as advertised. And this is a killer, actually. Our research and the literature is really, really clear on this, is the most influential factor in educational choice for sixth form is course, specifically subject. So in other words, you know, it's the most important thing that you've got the right subject for the person who's coming to study with you. Yeah. If you missell the course, you describe it in, in a way that doesn't match the expectations, or, and this relates to, to success rates, if you change the course content because you change an exam board because you want to improve your success rates, for instance, you think the previous exam board's exams are too difficult, for instance, that's going to have an impact on retention and recruitment because people will turn up and go look at what they've got and think, hold on a minute, I didn't apply for this. That's particularly problematic with retention. Uh, people change their minds about what they want to do. They turn up, they do equine studies and they suddenly realise that they don't like horses and they want to be a motor race driver. We've all done We've it. We've all done it. <laughs> sometimes people just get a better offer and sometimes that's due to poor communication from an alternative institution. So for instance, you apply to two or three places, your preferred place never gets back to you, you go off and you enrol at College X and then out of the blue, College Y gets its act together and rings you and says, oh actually, sorry we haven't been in touch but we'd quite like to have you after all. Just looking at this piece, Christina Donovan, who's a lecturer in education studies at Manchester Met University, yeah. she's done some research on this six-week lever phenomenon. It focuses on learners deemed to be at risk and the relationship between perceptions of vulnerability and student withdrawal. She says students who may be withdrawn from courses are called at risk, often flagged up on internal monitoring systems and reports that are sent to senior management teams or government bodies. She explains they're at risk because someone at the college has decided that, for whatever reason, may not complete their courses. These assessments can consider issues like attendance, performance, she says, but also broader factors of vulnerability. 
In effect, my study seemed to suggest that students revealing an aspect of their lives which makes them vulnerable can lead them to being labelled as at risk. Which is, I think, is quite a concerning piece of research. I think um, information is amoral. It's what you do with it that's moral. At risk can be a positive identification or a negative one. It's what you do as a senior management team and a governing body. You've got a choice. You can either help those people. And for me, that's the ethos of FE that I'm familiar with. And I'm trying not to look with rose tinted glasses. I'm, you know, I'm literally using the evidence that's yeah, available yeah. to me. Typically, the behaviours of colleges will be to support. So I'll give you an example. In the studies that we've done, um, typically colleges will then use that to develop an assessment system or to support their student support systems so that they're better at identifying students that you might call at risk, not for the purposes of off-rolling them or removing them, but retaining them. You know, so they can that, put that, the right interventions in place yeah, to give yeah, them I mean, more, you know, more support. Absolutely. And student support, you and I are lucky enough to be judges of the TES awards. We've seen incredible entries uh, from colleges over the years in relation to student support. And I think that at their best, student support initiatives are they're the best of FE, actually. And they're probably yeah. the best of, of education, actually, because they're the things where institutions working with students that might have had a pretty ropey time at school and may not be the easiest to deal with but they're innovative they're imaginative and they care about retaining the individuals for me that tends to be the norm now of course there'll be institutions that make the wrong choice and they use the risk analysis in order to improve success rates and that's going to happen and that's happened actually in different formats ever since I've been involved in FE we've had over the years scandals involving different ways of manipulating numbers, whether that's essentially hiding figures, keeping the people in the college but hiding their results. If you remember, that was a, a challenge to various institutions in the past. Or, as is sort of suggested by that, by the sort of confusions that came from that research, that you're physically sort of excluding at-risk individuals. I'm not going to be naive enough to say that doesn't happen, but the evidence that's presented to me as a researcher is that it's not the norm. Was there anything that came out of your research that surprised you? Yeah, yeah, loads. You know, you had individuals who just turned up to college and they had lecturers who swore at them. On the first day, they walked into class. What? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so you have pockets of really bad practice. So we look at data. We look across the board at data and we look at all the different subject areas and we have a look at where the data tells us that retention is a problem. So then we do primary research amongst those people who've gone elsewhere. So and we ask, why do you not stick around, essentially? And, and could the college have done anything different? And sometimes you get incredible answers about, you know, well, I turn up to class and somebody abused me every day for three weeks. And then I decided that I wasn't having that anymore and I left. So sometimes you get that. I mean, we have one research project where open days were a negative factor. What I mean by that is you were more likely to come to the college in a particular subject area if you hadn't attended an open day. What was happening on the open day? Staff were just horrible. <gasps> so people turning up. Were they? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that can happen. That can happen. You can have... Isn't that the opposite have... of the point of open days? Yeah, <laughs> you, you're absolutely opposite. It was just, it was just mean, unwelcoming you know, frosty, you know, sometimes that's a protest against management and sometimes it's to do with contractual terms. Obviously, you know, typically it's a human resources issue. 
and sometimes an industrial issue. I find that fascinating because you've got a workforce that's effectively looking to make itself redundant by putting off people enrolling on its course. But there we are. You know, that's not the norm, you know. So you get other stuff. Um, we had a fascinating project where people were leaving a college because they changed their minds about what they wanted to do and they hadn't realised that the college taught the course that they now wanted to do. It's that simple. Yeah. And the college introduced a campaign which was called Swap Don't Drop, really successful, and those students stayed in, in that college but just did a different course. Really basic, basic thing, but it was it was highly, highly effective. You often get a problem where you just get admin problems where student details are passed between a central point, let's say admissions, to a curriculum team, and for different reasons, the details fall off the radar, and, you know, someone doesn't get called, and so they don't, that particularly affects non-enrolled applicants, so people who, they don't don't end up enrolling because they sort of fall through through a gap somewhere. Uh, The one that I find really sad is where you get bullying accusations by other students, and you know, you talk to somebody about why they left. They've had a real difficult time with fellow students. It's not being dealt with effectively by the institution. So if you can present this evidence back, if you can make sure that you're doing a robust study, that the people that you're talking to are representative of the wider population. So well, you've got to sample the data really effectively and intelligently. We specialise in relatively detailed conversations with people who dropped out if you can get them to be honest and my researchers are fantastic at that they're experts in talking to students and getting students to be honest about what they've done and why they've done it if you can get them to tell you you get brilliant information and when you feed that back to a college they tend to you know oh crikey we didn't know that a lot of the stuff they can fix some of the stuff they can't they just can't fix you know somebody might just go down the road because they've changed their mind you don't do that course bad luck that's not going to happen what can colleges do to boost the retention after 42 days to make sure that we're not getting to this point where students are disappearing? Obviously, someone like me is going to say, oh, work with someone like us um, and we'll tell you how to fix it. But actually, you know, independent of whether you get any help from the outside, a few things spring to mind. I mean, this is retaining them before and after 42 days. I mean, obviously, don't have a culture or a system that seeks to remove people that's that's the first thing be a force for good is number one number two i think contractual terms with your lecturing staff is really important what i mean by that is it's not just work contracts i mean just sort of generally having an accepting culture that everybody has to chip in to make people feel welcome and to support admissions and to help student support and those kind of things so it's got to be a collective effort because all it takes is is somebody uh, acting against the grain and you're a 16 17 year old and you you're having a difficult time with your lecturer that could ruin your experience number three i would say really important for colleges is to have those student support systems in place where you're checking in on your students and you've got effective monitoring particularly related to attendance which is generally a marker that things are up and you're on top of that but i'm not a student support expert at all so there'll be other people who are, not, are much more knowledgeable about how that the actual you know systems that people use to track those at risk and keep in touch with them and make sure that if there's something that you can do to help them and um, that it's being done i think the other thing that's really important for particularly retention in the early days is there's a bit of a tension in colleges priding themselves in not being school and that, yeah. but sometimes that can tip a little bit too far one way and that is sometimes interpreted as 
very free and easy come if you want that sort of yeah thing. or you know it's, it's up to you to sort of get here and you need to be independent etc which i absolutely understand that ethos and i think it's necessary particularly in the medium to longer term but they might just need a little bit more help particularly in the early stages and i'm not an expert on how to do that but our research indicates one of the big issues is where particularly young people turn up and in the first two or three weeks they're intimidated by how different it is from school. There's this stuff about the security that solid routines and boundaries give to people. I mean, in some courses, you do brilliant stuff with this, you know, in terms of having tutors who go above and beyond in making sure people get to college and, and trying to fix some of the systemic stuff around can you get a bus here and if you've got financial problems have we got any bursary that we could help you with and you know you've got colleges dealing with sadly with homeless students and doing amazing jobs with support that's just absolutely incredible so it's not the case that most institutions don't care but my experience is that they're extremely caring Ben, it's been really interesting talking to you and you've changed my opinion and my understanding of this whole 42-day rule situation. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This has been the TESFE podcast with Ben Verinder and me, Sarah Simons. Join us again soon for all the FE news and views. Thanks for listening.